0: Hello and welcome to the Hello. first episode of the Imagine Creatively Podcast. Our first Hallelujah.
1: thank you for inviting me. Nice Robin, to see you again.
0: Robin Poulton is our first guest, and I'm honored to have you on, Robin. And I'm impressed and amazed of your very long experience in the field, but also staying linked with the academia and with writing about it. So well, as you know, a, I
1: have a long experience. Because I'm getting quite old. Look at my beard. (laughs) Experience comes with age.
0: It's definitely a gift to be working in so many projects in the field and also writing over 10 books and 300 articles since 1970s. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Robin, I love that you call yourself a white West African. And having worked in Africa, I know how important that is and how beautiful and important it is for so-called white-identified people to have an African soul and to be there. And also a child of the United Nations.
1: You were? Well, I was a child in West Africa. My father was a World Health Organization doctor. So I was a child in West Africa. And uh, I learned to laugh in West Africa. And I learned how to make West Africans laugh. Once when I was uh, working with the Swiss, I was on a panel with the Swiss ambassador. And at the end, this was in Nigeria, we were talking about peace and disarmament and security issues and democracy. And at the end, a uh, Nigerian journalist came to me and he said, thank you very much for what you said. This is the first time I heard a white man speak like a black man. And after that, I became a columnist on his newspaper for several years. Very flattering, I was very happy
0: wonderful so it's definitely breaking down the vision lines which are very strong still
1: question of understanding what people need and not trying to exploit them
0: so Robin, I'm really happy to to start a reflection with you because as a uh-huh. practitioner as well, that I have withdrawn from the field for a few years to raise small kids. I've been pondering a lot on what can we bring from the field of peace building and conflict resolution, which is growing as a big as a big field, but is not so um, present in mainstream thinking. Peace still has these connotations so, of, oh, um, that boring flower power, you know, and I say, but it's political peace. How can we make these links? What is relevant? You've with so much experience behind being in a professional field of conflict, but also you've, you've been a parent and you have a day-to-day life. How do you manage this being a professional basically it never stops when you work for peace i find i cannot separate and say this is my work because it's really it's who we are and what we do and what's the message we give as a life to
1: absolutely right well the most important thing i think is smiling you're smiling at me and smiling is part of peace smiling is is communicating joy and love and when you talk about flower power if you remember the, uh, you're too young to remember, but it's my generation, the uh, San Francisco, all those were flowers, and it was about peace and love. And what I've tried to do throughout my life is to promote peace and love. So when I meet somebody, I smile. And when, I, uh, when I've had teams, for example, where I was managing as a manager, I had the principle that there is no such thing as a bad idea. Anybody who comes to me with an idea, I smile and I say, well, that's a good idea. Let's think about it so that people feel positive and they always feel of going forward. And that's the basis of peace. If you have war, everything stops, everything gets destroyed. But if you've got peace, everything is going forward. You're always looking for new, happy sources of uh, inspiration. Back in the Scottish Enlightenment days, the, uh, after the French Enlightenment, which was Diderot and Voltaire and Rousseau and so on, there was the Scottish Enlightenment, very strongly influenced by them, people like Adam Smith, who was the father of economics, and Adam Ferguson, who was the, the father of uh, sociology and anthropology, and uh, a man called David Hume, <coughs> who was very, uh, uh, very much uh, involved with the idea that our thoughts are driven by passion. And uh, out of Adam Smith, uh, uh, Adam Ferguson... And David Hume came the idea that life should be devoted to promoting the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And I spent, I learned this when I was, went to university of moral philosophy, and it was uh, most developed by um, Jeremy Bentham in England and John Stuart Mill in Scotland. And the greatest happiness of the greatest number is the thing that, that you should calculate before you take a decision. So supposing I wanted to get divorced, I don't want to get divorced, I've been married for 47 years, I'm very happy. But supposing I wanted to get divorced, (coughs) it's not just my happiness and my wife's happiness. It's also my children's happiness, their friends' happiness, my in-laws, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my wife's brothers and sisters. All of those people are impacted by the decision to get divorced. And if you add up the the greatest happiness and you compare it to the greatest unhappiness, It is quite clear that if you take account of all of those people, whatever happiness you might be thinking you would get from divorcing is outweighed, vastly outweighed, by the great unhappiness that you're creating for all these people. What it means is that you're always thinking about other people, and that's a very helpful thing to do. That is a basis for peace and happiness.
0: Oh, you are touching a very hot topic, I think, and this is peace at the micro level at the family, and we do have a very high divorce rate. Yes. throughout the world now, that it's possible to divorce and it's so easy to divorce. Uh, average marriages now don't last more than three years. And to me, as a professional in this field, I'm thinking, oh, what about the tools? Do, do couples have tools? Shouldn't we have uh, newlyweds going through a little course of how to live together and how to solve contradictions and tensions that appear? Because otherwise, it's all too easy to break up, find another person, start the same um, cycle. And I think that's yeah. partly of the problem. Yeah. So we're not ad- I'm advocating one or the other, but I think having concrete tools and support for uh, the small, the new family formed to actually have a happy life, to live a happy life, not just be together because there's the pressure of the social environment, but really live a happy well, fulfilled life together. Depends
1: to understand by happiness because people have been influenced by Hollywood and magazines and, They think that happiness is all about um, roses and uh, stars. And no, happiness is about contentment. Happiness changes and develops, and with you have your children, your children are happy, you're happy. It's it's a process, and if you don't give yourself time to develop that process, you never discover what real happiness is. I now think myself that the (laughs) the, uh, divorce rate is so serious that we should stop giving marriages and we should do seven-year contracts. Mm-hmm. you've got a contract for seven years, that means that when you get fed up with your wife in three years, well, you've got, you're stuck with her until seven years. And then around the age of five or, five or six years, you have to start negotiating the contract and decide whether you want to continue or not. And then people would start thinking very seriously about whether they want another seven years. And that is partly, it's partly because we live so long now. I mean, I've been, living, I've been married for 47 years. I've known my wife for 50 years. Well, that is a huge privilege. Most people don't get to that because most people don't live that long. When I studied medieval history, I discovered that people of 45 were really old. And if anybody lasted as long as 60, they were burned as a witch because the only way they could live that long was because they used black magic. And so we have put extra strains on marriage, both by our unrealistic definitions of short-term happiness and by the fact that we live so long that we actually marry people who change. You know, I'm not the same man that my wife married and she's not the same woman that I married. Of course, we have molded each other, but we have changed our ambitions and we've gone through lifestyles together. Anyway, we like each other and
0: that's the main thing. (laughs) So it takes a lot of conflict resolution skills right, to negotiate a relationship that keeps changing. Well, that's...
1: There's no marriage without uh, strains and there's no marriage without negotiation. Yeah, that's true.
0: Wow, I love this perspective of brought home because I think this is very relevant for literally everyone that has a family. Well, family. I have a house
1: in Bamako in, in Mali. I still have a house in Bamako in Mali. And in there, that house, people, people who live there, all the people who were born in my house over the many, many years that I lived in Africa, I decided that I wanted to make sure that they had lodging, food and lodging and education. They, were, they didn't ask to be born, but since they were born, I took on the responsibility and a lot of them lost their fathers and so on. So I have a whole household. Last time I was there, there were 17 people in the house. But when I go there, it is very, very restful. When I go there, I know exactly who I am and what is expected of me. I walk in. I take off my shoes, I sit down, and somebody brings me a drink. Now I'm the patriarch. I'm expected to pay. I don't have to, end there's no negotiation. Everybody knows their role. When I'm back in, I live in France, So when I'm back in France, my marriage after 47 years is still a constant negotiation. Who's going to lay the table? Who's going to do the cooking? Who's going to make the bed? Who's going to put out the washing? But not in Mali, in Mali there's no negotiation, Everybody knows their roles, it's much more restful. It may not be the restful for people doing the work, but it's very restful for me.
0: Well, marriages are complex, <laughs> Robby. I think it's easier to work out there in the field than to keep a healthy, happy marriage and family. It takes yeah. constant work. So, well, yeah,
1: constant smiling.
0: Mm. You're
1: always smiling. You always wake up in the morning with a smile. It's a lot much easier to live with. Yeah, I think
0: autom- it's easier
1: to live with.
0: It You're automatically influences the mood. Well, I do play several hats and roles, and that's why I write stories because I can play all the characters the dragon <laughs> tamer and the dragon uh, himself.
1: But one of the The way, characters- I, use, the way I, I I have worked in the field a lot. I've done disarmament of uh, rebels and disarmament of terrorists and uh, building uh, peace projects and uh, trying to reconcile communities and so on in Africa and Asia. But uh, now I am using writing for that same purpose, the same way that you are. I don't stop trying to create peace, but now I'm using writing. Anyway, I'm now a bit too old to go out into the field. Not physically too old, but maybe people wouldn't hire me to go out into the field
0: anymore. Uh, but there's a wisdom of uh, age to be passed on. So I'm happy you are writing. We're going to get to that. Exactly. And I, I love the depth of your definitions so far. I had one... Um, question for you to expand on just to, to put a little bit of um, meat on the bones for wh- how do you envisage peace what is peace to you in a way that brings a little bit of clarity to the concept that i think is full of stereotypes around it and the, uh, doesn't let people really take it into the heart as to influence action so what's the big deal with peace well peace
1: is a cultural concept and it means different things to different people When I was sent to disarm the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, I had to make up my own definition of peace. Imagine me standing in a a rural pagoda, talking to 300 villagers, most of them have never seen a white person before, and (coughs) they all have guns because there's been 30 years of civil war. And so I said to them, are you At peace if your mother is sick and you can't get her medicines. Oh, no. Are you at peace if your children are hungry? Oh, my God. No, of course. And the groans that I heard around that pagoda floor were from people who knew what it was to have hungry children. So we established, through my examples, and we had big drawings on the board of, you know, big sacks of rice and <laughs> nice bullock carts fulling Harvest's home and so on. We established that peace was food, education, good health. In that case, all those Kalashnikovs you have at home, they can't be peace, can they? They must be war. And you can understand somebody in a civil war who is threatened, constantly physically threatened that for him defense <coughs> is having a kalashnikov And what am i doing i'm inviting them to give up their kalashnikov in exchange for development projects so i had to convince them that the kalashnikov was anti-peace so this was a good example i think of how peace definitions changed and i actually I could say that over a period of three weeks, I changed the definition of peace in Karachi, along the Ho Chiang Trail. I, I did it by laughter, I did it by persuasion, I just did it by uh, <coughs> using the colonels, the, I had to, to get the police to re-establish the power of the police to arrest soldiers if they were using weapons for hunting or extortion or whatever. And so it was a really fascinating political gamble, and it, and it paid off. But what I did was I redefined peace. Peace is not having a gun to defend yourself. Mm. Peace is giving up weapons so nobody has guns, so that we can all have food, health, and education. So that's one level of peace. So then it, if you did, go to, yeah?
0: it did pay off, you say, because I'm I really fascinated by what is it that really helps people to disarm mentally because the fact that weapons have become so widespread has actually disrupted a lot of the traditional indigenous uh, mechanisms communities had for solving conflicts peacefully, more reasonably. The fact that weapons are now so widely uh, available, it's so easy to just start uh, gunfires. But That's I, true. so I think this disarmament starts somehow in the minds of people and to me is what can we bring from that as a lesson to, to a, really a wider public? It doesn't well, use guns, say, but self. does has, has war thinking very strong.
1: Well, you could, you, sometimes wars have to be fought. You know, you can only bring people together when they've got to the stage where they feel that they've to come together so after 30 years of civil war in Cambodia most of it provoked by the Americans or the Vietnamese or the communist Chinese or (coughs) well and after a a most horrendous uh, period of the Khmer Rouge uh, you know a million people died in the camps a form of genocide then you could say that uh, they were ready for peace and if people are not ready for peace then you can't make peace but when we arrived and what was my role? I was this guy with white skin, white beard, long nose. I used to start my, my uh, speeches in the Pagodas apologizing for not speaking good Khmer. I would say that in Khmer. And then I would move into another language and somebody would be translating. And then I would say, and I want to apologize for my long nose, with my huge, big nostrils because that's exactly what they're thinking, how ugly I was. But I said, stroking my beard, I never have to apologize for my beautiful white beard. And they'd all be laughing because none of them had a beard. They, the old men had a few straggly hairs, but Cambodians don't have thick beards. And so my thick beard was an absolute fascination. And so I used that to get people laughing. But it's because I was a foreigner. Because I was a foreigner, I was able, I was using a neutral flag could be the United Nations flag, in this case, it was the European Union flag. Because I was an outside element, completely unthreatening and using humor to uh, bring people together, I was able to get people to talk to each other. Now, you had to have the political will. I went with the governor. The governor represents the, the overall, the new, overall civilian government that is trying to bring order to Cambodia, which has been a mass of fighting warring factions for the last 30 years. So there is political will, but how do you bring people under that umbrella? And so by being this neutral, unthreatening person, offering development projects, I was offering wells or a bridge or a school or whatever the community is needed, I was able to get people to talk to each other and to install the authority of the civilian government and the governor that was what it was about but you can't really, I can't I couldn't do that in another place in the same way it was the right moment at the right time getting people to talk to each other i was involved in a different one which went very successfully in the 1990s in uh, Mali, in West Africa. Again, there was the verge of civil war. And the president uh, said, we are going to withdraw the army. We are going to withdraw the administration. And we're going to ask community leaders to discuss together. So there, there was an element of United Nations neutrality to help this process take place. But what mainly happened was the community leaders came together. And they made sure that everybody who used the economic space was there. The traders were there, the farmers were there, the herders were there, the religious leaders were there, the women's associations were there, and they were all talking. And sometimes they talked for three or four days. But the conclusion was, we need to get the economy working again. Boys, you've got to give up your weapons and go to the cantonment. And of course, the, the army and the United Nations were ready to receive the, the weapons and take the boys into cantonment and give them medical tests and offer them jobs in the customs or the police or whatever so there was an integration process behind that but it was a a moment of how do you get people to talk together now west africa mali has a very very strong tradition of social discussion and civil society cambodia has none so you couldn't possibly use the same system in cambodia that we used in west africa in cambodia We brought people together under this, with this strange white guy with a long nose and a big beard, and his name was Locke Europe. Locke means Mister or distinguished Mister, and Europe. I was the representative of Europe, the the European Union, the European Commission, the European Council. I was, you know, I was completely bluffing, but I was the representative of this neutral place or neutral unit that was offering. Then the chance to come together in Mali, West Africa, they were all there. All they had to do was to have the army pull out of the way so that they could come together. This was President. Uh, his name is was uh, Alpha Omar Konare. He was the president at the time, the first ever elected president of Mali, and that's how they brought peace in the 1990s. But you're quite right. We collected up the weapons. We burned the weapons, and after the Libyan destruction of Libya by President Sarkozy and others. (coughs) Millions of weapons were released into the Sahara desert. Sahara is the biggest, cheapest bazaar for weapons in the world. And now Saudis and Qataris and others are also bringing in weapons. So there are more weapons. That's nowadays they say in uh, in the Sahara, the Kalashnikov is a woman's weapon. If you're a man, you want at least a rocket launcher. That's how bad it is. So it's very much more difficult. in in Mali today, and there are too many outside interests involved, and I'm not sure where we're going to go with it, but you've got to create the conditions to bring people together and then they find peace.
0: What you're raising is a huge issue, actually, and the five members of the United Nations Security Council, they are also the biggest arms dealers in the world. So countries are still investing and stocking and creating weapons of mass destruction. That's I mean it's it sounds unreal, but it's still happening. So whatever you
1: You want to use them. Yep. Yes, I I think this is very
0: political, this makes peace very political, because there's on the one hand all these programs on the ground, the United Nations, hundreds of organizations working and having budgets, which are peanuts, compared to the money invested in developing weapons and circulating, making weapons available, which is why, symbolically, it brings me back to to make this relevant for people who don't live in war zones for whom war is so far away that they don't care they're not touched it doesn't happen on my country in my continent it affects all of us because it's such a strong polarized thinking we still have as a humanity we need enemies fighting is so exciting like look at the the covid epidemics right now what a war thinking has activated in the Um, public scene. We talk about the evil monster that wants to take over humanity. Let's unite against this common enemy. Well, great, at least there's a united front behind, but still it's a lot of war thinking there. And and how do we mentally disarm so that we can see other things in practice? What are your thoughts on this?
1: That's a very difficult question, isn't it? (laughs) Again, I'd come back to uh, what we were talking about at the beginning, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. If you can put that into your thinking, get up in the morning with a smile and say, how can I promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number today? And it starts with you. It starts at the micro level in order to get to the macro level. So if you're looking after your neighbor, then you're already creating a movement towards peace. When you get to the question of the arms manufacturers, well, that is a that's a macro problem, and uh, I don't have any particular solution to that. I agree, the hypocrisy of the five members, uh, permanent members of the Security Council is appalling. I remember a Swedish diplomat who was now working for the European Union saying to me, well, you're British. He said, yes. I said, yes. He said, you know, we are Sweden. We're a small country. We have quite a small diplomatic service our whole diplomatic service is smaller than the department in the United Kingdom in London, which is put together to sell arms.
0: <laughs> well, so. Sweden, Sweden has quite a few uh, factories
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, of producing have government have all as
0: well.
1: Absolutely. But <laughs> his point was that, you know, it, selling weapons was huge business
0: yes.
1: for uh, Britain and, of course, France, and Soviet Union, and China, and most of all, America. Yes, yep. they say in America that they, everything else is made in China. The only thing the Americans know how to make anymore is things that kill people.
0: Mm, guns, wow. Appalling. Guns, rocket,
1: bombs, landmines, they're still making cluster bomb, even though it's forbidden. Yes, it's a very sad.
0: Oh. So in a way, I love what you are saying now. It links to my vision of bringing this head, heart, and hands methodology into everything we're doing. So I brought it from sustainable learning into my storytelling because I want to be efficient. I want to use my time and stories for a purpose. Right. And this question, waking up every morning to ask, how can I contribute to the greatest happiness of the greatest number is wonderful. Thank you.
1: Good. Well, I think It's micro. If
0: we start working, I think it's important to make uh, in this huge puzzle the connections to put the pieces of puzzle together so that even though we're talking about stories for five-year-olds, we start giving them and their parents some tools to understand the bigger picture. Because otherwise, we are just, uh, what are we creating? Great oases, small oases of uh, everything is fine, the birds putting their uh, heads in the sand, not knowing what's happening. And then there's no analytical tools to understand what is happening when something hits, like something big, like what we have right now in
1: the world. What we have right now is going to change a lot of things. It's very interesting that uh, somebody said on radio, on French radio the other day Air France has uh, canceled nearly all its flights. It's achieved in two weeks. All of its ambitions to uh, reduce uh, flight emissions and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. global warming.
0: Reduce the fingerprint, the footprint on the planet. Okay.
1: And now they have well. closed Orly Airport. Now, there are two airports in Paris. Orly is the smaller one and Charles de Gaulle is the bigger one. Orly Airport has now been closed. And a lot of people think it will probably never reopen.
0: Well, that's the most pessimistic um, scenario. You know what I would ask with this positive that might be cons-
1: an optimistic scenario?
0: We don't know. True, but I want to give something because um, also I'm coming from a country in Romania that's uh, famous for its <laughs> negative uh, mindset. Everything is better over to the neighbors. We're living such a terrible life when we are actually 20% top of the world in terms of infrastructure, economics, education. But people always look and and are being unhappy about what's happening here. Right, Um,
1: behaving like cows. You know it's cows that always think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Well I hope oh, Romanians are more intelligent than cows. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we could we have a po- possibility to get there, being more <laughs> locked in, <laughs> reflect and integrate the lessons. But I'm just thinking the scenarios. What if we adopt this um, type of thinking? What can possibly go right? How can this go and lead to something that's actually not going to be the end of the world but to something meaningful because there's always a the best scenario out there and if we wake up every morning with that creator power in us to imagine how can I contribute to what's happening next that's what at least I think it's important and I'm trying to put into my storytelling inspiration because we have a responsibility. If we just fuel this negativity out there and what's happening, and yes, wonderful analysis and criticism of the current point, uh, state of affairs, but we're not putting in our penny and our energy for what we want to create every day, then we really just are at the mercy of what? Ourselves, our own negative mindset, actually. Yes,
1: but it's a very question of how you interpret it. See, I, I, I see the closing of all the airports as quite a positive thing. And you see it as maybe a negative thing, but it could be very positive. Maybe it means that we no longer have to do so much flying. Maybe we will be more content uh, living in a slightly smaller world. Uh, For example, one of the things that I find most obscene, my personally, about our current civilization and the tourism world are these vast cruisers that go around taking people on cruises. 5,000 people on a ship. And I've seen pictures where these people, these uh, ships drive up into Venice and they make Venice look small. And of course they make huge uh, destruction elements with their waves and so on. And now we know if you look down the list of coronavirus victims, around 10th or 12th in the list of countries is cruise ships. Cruise ships now count as a country. And maybe, maybe the cruise ship business will go out as a result of coronavirus. And I can see all sorts of reasons why that would be beneficial. Wouldn't be beneficial to the people who own the cruise ships, of course, but uh, they only make that for money anyway. But I don't think that the cruise ships are a very positive aspect of our current civilization. And if that business disappears, that would be, in my view, a bonus. Mm-hmm. And if Orly never opens because we don't have so much air traffic in the future, that would probably be a bonus.
0: So definitely every disadvantage comes with its advantages. That's the quickest way to balance the brain and see that, uh, that nothing happens without a reason.
1: Definitely. So if we're looking for positives, you know, those are two obvious positives.
0: Mm-hmm. And there are
1: all sorts of others. And one of the things that seems to me quite absurd is that we eat food that is traveled All the way across the world. Why aren't we eating the food that is made locally, grown locally? My favorite economics textbook was written by, in the 19, I think 1957 or something, by a man called Ernst Schumacher. And it's called Small is Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is A Study of Economics as If People Really Mattered. And one of the things he says in this book is he, he was the he was the founder of the uh, Intermediate Technology Movement, but he, his job was he was the chief economist at the coal board in Britain. So he, he was working for the coal industry. Uh, so he, had, he, he was working for a huge industry, but very critical of the system in which he was working. And he, he did a study of baking cookies He said, if a Martian came down and had a look at the cookie industry, the biscuit industry in Britain, they would discover that a lot of biscuits are made in London, a lot of biscuits are made in Glasgow. And instead of being made, baked all over the country, they have these huge factories in Glasgow and near London, and they have fleets of lorries carrying cookies all over the country. And a Martian coming down would be very reasonable to conclude but the most important part of the process of baking was actually putting them into trucks and carrying them around the country. He said, if we baked locally in small factories, we would have fresh cookies, more people would be employed, and we would spend less on diesel fumes and less on uh, transport and so on. Small is beautiful. And I've always been convinced by that. <coughs> I'm thoroughly against... The consolidation in all industries, of you know, creating monopolies, mega companies that buy up and then consolidate, get rid of other people, and increase the size of the manufacturing units. This is very inefficient. It is maybe efficient for making profit for the oligarchs, but it is very inefficient in any other measure. It is inefficient in terms of energy. It is inefficient in terms of happiness. It's inefficient in terms of employment, it's inefficient in terms of social and uh, transport organization. We run a very inefficient system. Called and,
0: and may I add to uh, the quality, efficient. in terms of the quality of the product that gets to the final consumer. Yes, now absolutely. we have a, a mentality, let's buy the cheapest, the cheapest possible thing, it's not just about the cheapest. So maybe this... Food this is food. another problem, yes. It's huge.
1: of cheap food,
0: yeah. I uh, woke up this morning thinking now we have a military ordinance in Romania um, narrowing down the possibility of movement you need um, you cannot go out like all people over 65 can only go out for a few hours they limited movement for our safety and I remembered waking up and being uh, during communist times in Romania during the totalitarian regime which was famous for having all these uh, basically food shops empty. That until the ratio of oil or sugar or flour was coming, you would always go to the neighbor and say, oh, can you lend me a little bit of oil (laughs) until I have my portion? And I always remember that as part of being in the community. Now we've become so self-confined. I was thinking one of the advantages, people living in huge blocks of flats where they don't know their neighbors for years, Now they're locked in with their kids, which are going crazy all over the world. They might have a chance to say hello to their neighbor and to say, oh, can we do something fun with our kids so we don't all go crazy inside?
1: Absolutely. Apparently that is happening. For example, uh, people who didn't know each other before are now helping each other out, you know, because they can't go out. And so somebody's bringing their bread or their newspaper or whatever it is. And apparently there is a, a sense of, Uh, more community and looking out for old people and so on that's
0: Mm -hmm. a good thing and i'm just hearing families with kids are asking for places houses to rent in the countryside where they can have a garden and go out and with barefoot in the grass so that's definitely another thing that could bring a little bit of sanity and reflection over how do we want to continue after this which which two shall pass, how are we going to continue doing business as usual on this little
1: earth? Business as usual is not what we need to do. We need to do business in a different way.
0: Exactly. So there's a possibility to explore for more peace business there. How to make peace more profitable. I still keep this question. You know, they used to say in our field that peace doesn't sell, it's not attractive and fighting is so much more exciting and fun and sexy and sells, but we could be creative, right?
1: Well, I, I have a theory that peace is actually more profitable. I, I have tried to discuss this with various CEOs of big companies and I've never managed to make any progress. But uh because they are all in thinking in ter- in short term in terms of making a profit with the circumstances there are. But actually if everybody is buying cars on a regular two yearly or three yearly cycle or if everybody is buying bread every morning or whatever it is instead of Having to hoard instead of going to being going short and not being able to buy it at all, not being able to get supplies, peace must be more profitable than war to most people. Now, of course, it's not more profitable to the arms manufacturers, it's not more profitable to the uh, weapons uh, and the munitions companies, it may not be more profitable to people who are selling diesel at high prices to terrorists or to armies. You know, there are always people who are going to make a a buck. But uh, (coughs) overall, peace must be more profitable.
0: Maybe we can put together a a team of specialists, you know, (laughs) interdisciplinary, international, that could come up with some creative ideas of how these industries could uh, redirect, you know.
1: Well, I want to...
0: I want to bring in my love glasses because it's part of the therapy that I'm bringing through my oh, stories. And I know they're a bit cheesy and very oh, obvious. No. That's why I chose them. But if we, if we talk about this idea of, you know, really, what, if, what would the world look like through the eyes of love? But very practical, not this lofty ideal, very practical. When you love someone, you have a conflict, you have an issue, but you really also care about that person and you want to keep it going, the relationship, the life you have together. You know, it's so easy now to say, oh, okay, close down relationships, in between countries, I mean. But if we take it down again at the micro level, you know, I hate my little brother for doing this to me, but, (laughs) you know, I can't do anything about it. We're still family. I used to work with the United Nations, I was thinking, you know, a little bit of United family thinking into the family of United Nations could actually be useful. Because then we apply that logic, and I think parents could be great peacemakers because they hold it together when they do, to be consultants for the countries that cannot manage to keep that logic in place and, and argue with each other as if they are in kindergarten. But uh, unfortunately for the rest of us, they are too close to the armaments and to the nuclear bombs button. So yeah, that's how they look. My vision vision is to have a gallery of personalities wearing the love glasses and at least photographing themselves with them and saying, oh, it looks different.
1: It looks like like you're wearing sunglasses.
0: It, it, It looks a bit pink. It's already a different perspective. You know, So <laughs> <This is beautiful. laughs> have
1: shining eyes, now you have shining glasses with your shining <laughs> smile. Perfect.
0: You know? Yeah, we can have some that are not so obvious, but the idea that there's medicine, even a monocle, just look through one eye through the eyes of love and the other through the eyes of war, <laughs> and still, we can find some better solutions then. when well, if we you get look
1: so through crazy. the eyes of war, all you'll see is destruction. Death and destruction is war. One of the problems we have is that we have this uh, culture of glorifying soldiers and uniforms and brass bands and medals as if it's all glorious. But actually, when you get to war, it's not glorious at all. It's painful. It's dirty. It's blood, mud.
0: And speaking to soldiers, uh, it's the greatest testimonials for peace yeah seeing what it does to be in a world or human being yeah.
1: yeah a lot of people say it's often said in america that the politicians want the war and the, the the army wants peace
0: yeah so my my last insight that i'd like love to see from you is to bring it down to what can each of us do where we are for peace, you know, the hashtag can do for peace in the world, starting with where I am right now.
1: Well, each person is in a different place, but we all start in our family, and it seems to me that the uh, most important thing is to start at the micro level. I'm a great believer in that. So, if you start in the morning with a smile, if you're nice to everybody. And if you try to promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number at your own level, then you hope that that will scale up. If you're, not, if you're nice to people in the office, they'll be nice back. And you create an atmosphere of niceness.
0: You create
1: an atmosphere of joy. I remember going out sometimes and feeling that my office was a bit down. You know, so you could, low levels of energy. So I would set out to make people laugh. And when I left, the, went back into my office, I could feel that the energy level had come up because people had been laughing. Sometimes it made a joke. Sometimes I would get up and stand on the desk and make a speech. But whatever it was that I did, people would finish feeling better and be more energy and they would be more creative. And that's a positive form of uh, leadership. It comes down to leadership skills, and there are different types of leadership but I'm a great believer in the, the concept of sports leadership. The captain of the team, he has to be the captain, but he has to be good enough to be in the team. So he, he's the guy who will play the hardest. And he will be the example. And if, he doesn't, if he's not the example, he will lose his captaincy. So he, he plays by example. And he is also for the whole team. So if somebody is, for example, injured, but still wants to play on. For the whole team, he will say, look, Ina, you've got a bad foot. I'm going to have to get you out and bring in somebody else. Out you go. So he has to take decisions, but he doesn't take decisions for himself. He takes positions for the whole team. And if he's playing football and the goalkeeper is not a good goalkeeper anymore, maybe he was good at the beginning of the season, now he's not a good goalkeeper. For the sake of the team, he has to change the goalkeeper. Otherwise, the team will fall to pieces. So that form of leadership seems to me, that's the one that suits me best anyway, <laughs> it's you, 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 you ginger people up by being the best and taking them with you. And if they're not working, well, then you have to make changes.
0: That sounds really beautiful, ginger people up, and humor is medicine. <laughs> Thank you so much for today and for being with us and giving a little bit of your inspiration. I loved talking to you and reflecting and may this only be the first.
1: It's a real pleasure. Take care of yourself. Thank you.
0: Imagine creatively is going to keep going.
1: (laughs) Be happy.